Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 53, Guelphs, Ghibellines and Normans with Big Ideas. Before we start this episode, I'd like to make a little announcement. Marco Capelli of the Storia d'Italia, the version of a history of Italy in Italian, is organizing a trip to Ravenna on the 24th of August 2019. So, if you're listening to this episode before that date, and you think that you can make it to the area of Ravenna for that period, it will be great to meet everyone. You can find the event on the A History of Italy Facebook page, as well as the Storia d'Italia Facebook page, or get in touch via the usual channels that I'll mention at the end of the episode. It will be great to be able to meet as many of you as possible. Well now, we've recapped this and recapped that and set up the communes and wandered around them a bit, so now, maybe, finally, we are ready to let the sands of time start flowing again and let the years start to roll on once more. We left off at the Concordat of Worms in 1122 when Holy Roman Emperor Henry V and Pope Calixtus II brought an end to the investiture controversy by stating that the king could invest the bishops with the secular authority by the lance and the Pope with the spiritual authority, by the staff. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's sort of thing. Listeners will remember that the whole controversy started about who had the right to invest bishops who then held great wealth and lands as well as their spiritual authority. Neither the Pope nor the Emperor lived much longer after that. Calixtus died in 1124, and Henry V the year after, in 1125. Henry had died without leaving heirs. Not a good move when dealing with rulers and successions. The investiture controversy that had raged for the reigns of Henry V and his father, Henry IV, had distracted the emperors and kings of Germany from their hold on the country, and there were a whole load of independently-minded German vassals around. One of the dividing issues among the German aristocracy was that of the succession, with many nobles believing that the Holy Roman Emperor should be elected by the magnates. Therefore, after the death of Henry V, Lothar of Saxony was elected to take his place at the tender age of 65. He didn't get much time to hang around relaxing and doing emperor stuff because in 1128 up popped Conrad of Swabia who wanted the Kingdom of Germany and the Holy Roman Emperor job to go back to a hereditary system and he wanted his family, the Hohenstaufen, to be the ones inheriting it. To the aid of Lothar came his relations, the powerful wealth family of Bavaria. So on one side, we had the Welfs and Lothar for the 
elected emperor system, and on the other, the Hohenstaufer with Conrad, who wanted the hereditary system, and they came from the castle of Weibling. Wealth and Weibling, two words that, when they crossed the Alps into Italy, became Guelfo and Ghibellino, Guelfs and Ghibellines. Yet another division that, in time, would tear the Italian cities apart. It would also change the original meaning of the division. This is also thanks to the Pope, who immediately weighed in on the side of the Guelphs, who you will remember were pro-hereditary emperors, because that would mean weaker emperors who were subject to those who had elected them. The Pope at this time was no longer Calixtus II. The Pope of the Concordat of Worms, the Pope now was Honorius II, and he moved pretty quickly. When Conrad came down to Milan to be crowned King of Italy, the Pope hurled an anathema at him, which is not only an excommunication but it's also a curse. A whole load of Popish voodoo came down on his kingly head. The Pope. Also invited Lothar to come down to Rome. Unfortunately for everyone involved, everyone involved was in a stalemate, kind of Mexican standoff, if you will. Because of the uncertain situation in Germany, Conrad couldn't come down to punish the Pope, and Lothar couldn't come down to help him. The Pope himself was in a bit of a pickle. He had been elected thanks to the support of the Pierleoni family in Rome. Which naturally meant that there would be other factions opposing. In this case, the counts of Signy and Ceccano. Not knowing what to do, Pope Honorius II opted for dying in 1130, which I suppose you could say solved his dilemma. At this point, it was the ancient house of Frangipani who popped up and elected Innocent II. Apparently, this was all done in a very hush-hush, secret manner, perhaps to avoid the conflict that came after an election. It didn't work. When they found out, the Pierleoni, a part Jewish family of bankers, got tough and managed to impose Anacletus the Second. So, we have Innocent the Second and Anacletus the Second, a pope and an anti-pope. Innocent escaped to Lothar in Germany to ask for help, and help he finally did. He made his way down with a rather unimpressive army, to the point that many Italian cities closed their gates in his face. As they made their way down, there must have been a happy bromance going on, because the emperor ceded the lands of Matilda to the Pope, as the countess had wanted. They finally arrived in Rome, and Innocent got his big chair back, for the time that Lothar stayed. Obviously, then it was Anacletus again, and Innocent running off to Tuscany, crossing his arms in a huff, having a big hissy fit, and saying, "Well, you just wait till Lothar comes back." Back down the emperor came, by now dragging his seventy-year-old bones, or actually being dragged more by the accompanying Duke of Bavaria. They got to Rome, and everybody wanted something different. Innocent wanted Anacletus, 
who was holed up in Castel Sant'Angelo, out. The Duke of Bavaria wanted an expedition against the Normans, which he tried himself, picking up only disease for his troops. And poor old Lothar just wanted to get his tired bones back up to Germany. He didn't make it. The Germans made their way back up, dropping like flies as they went, and Lothar died in Trento, in the house of a humble farmer. Now Innocent was in trouble again. Things looked pretty grim for him, with no emperor around to protect him. Luckily, that is when Anacletus decided to die. So all good, right? You can just see him doing the happy dance, pumping his fists in the air. Then he turns around. There, looking very annoyed and blaming him for the Bavarian incursion, were a bunch of unhappy Normans. So, what had they been up to? Well, you will remember that back in 1059 in Melfi, Pope Nicholas II had officially recognised the dominion of the Normans over Calabria and Puglia, as well as Sicily. Now, the Normans didn't actually have Sicily then, but they soon took care of that, conquering the ruling Muslims. War is never a pretty thing, and the Normans had gone about it with a mix of cruelty and tolerance. One of the last battles of the war, that of Cerami, saw about 80,000 Muslims killed during the battle, after the battle, when they had already surrendered, and also sold into slavery. On the other hand, the city of Palermo opted to negotiate, and the agreement was respected by the conquering Normans. Pockets of resistance continued on, but once the dust had settled, the new overlords were more interested in setting up a new government than ethnic cleansing. So, many Muslims stayed on as artisans, merchants and bureaucrats, although they did have to pay a tax, ironically like the one they had imposed on the non-Muslim population of the island. Their presence in Sicily can be traced all the way to the 13th century, when Christian persecution became more intense. They were not the only ones around, obviously. Although the Muslims, made up of Arabs and Berbers from Africa, were the more numerous, you could also find Greeks, some from the ancient families of pre-Roman Magna Graecia, and other more recent Byzantine immigrants. Then, of course, you could find the Roman colonial families. There were actually different notary offices for the different populations in Greek, Latin and Arabic. The Normans had kept for themselves only the positions of power and the military and settled in without too much of a revolution because first of all they hadn't migrated in mass and secondly they brought a feudal system to an area that had not experienced it so they were not really stepping on any existing feudal toes. The main leaders of the Normans during the time had been the Hauteville brothers, Robert Giscard and Roger. It was the latter that saw the war to its end. Roger is also credited with the formation of the new Sicilian church, which obviously had struggled under Muslim rule, and now he was able to place men of trust in the key bishoprics of the island. We have seen how important it was in the Middle Ages to have the church on your side.
The family and feudal dynamics were a bit complicated. It had been Robert Giscard who had been made Duke of all of southern Italy and Sicily in Melfi in 1059, but it was his brother Roger who held the island due to the fact that Robert had continued to have trouble with rebellions from the pesky vassals in Puglia, who, like the good Lombard Italians they were, were always on the lookout to gain more independence. Officially, Roger held Sicily and parts of Calabria, the toe of the boot, as a vassal under his brother Robert. He was a good vassal, helping out with the main responsibility a vassal had, i.e., military service, such as in the taking of Bari in 1071 and the fight against the Byzantines in Illyria in the 1080s. When the Giscard died in 1085, he left two sons, Roger Borsa and Bohemond. The latter was clearly the more capable administrator and military leader. Therefore, it made sense for Uncle Roger to put his support behind the weaker of the two nephews, Roger Borsa. The uncle was able to sort things out diplomatically, with Bohemond being content with some cities in Puglia and the Principality of Taranto. Things were definitively sorted out with the First Crusade, when Bohemond became one of the first rulers of the Crusading Kingdoms in the Holy Land. Roger continued to gain more and more influence and power, receiving concessions from his nephew every time he needed military or financial help. Roger, first Count of Sicily, died in 1101, leaving his six-year-old son Roger II. In the care of his mother, Adelasia. Roger Borsa, Duke of Calabria, Puglia, and Sicily, then died ten years later in 1111, and the duchy was inherited by his son, William. The following year, Roger II, Count of Sicily, came of age. Duke William, if possible, was a worse ruler than his father had been. His cousin, Count Roger II, instead, was more than a chip off the old block. So, the mechanism from the previous rulers continued. Duke William got into trouble, needed cash, and Count Roger bailed him out, gaining more and more concessions each time. Finally, in 1125, came a request for a pretty hefty loan, so hefty indeed that the price asked. Was the succession to the duchy? William accepted. He had no heirs then, and perhaps he thought he would worry about it when the time came. After all, he was only thirty at the time. On a spooky note, he also decided that same year to build his funeral mausoleum in Salerno. Spooky, because only two years passed before he died in eleven twenty-seven. It is said that his wife, Widelgrima, was so stricken with grief that she cut off all her long golden hair and placed it on her husband's sarcophagus. Legend has it that on every fourth of August, a golden butterfly comes out of the sarcophagus and flutters around the columns of the cathedral before disappearing. So. In the year 1127, Count Roger of Sicily and Calabria 
became the vassal of himself, and effectively Duke of Puglia, Calabria, and Sicily. Now this had all been sorted out in the family, so to say, but there were various vassals who were not happy at all to have such a powerful overlord. And there was the official vassal lord of the new duke who was not happy, and that would have been the Pope, who, as we had mentioned towards the beginning of the episode, was Honorius II. So we're almost back to where we wanted to get to. Now, Honorius also did not want such a powerful vassal on his doorstep. He would have preferred the much weaker Prince of Capua. Things inevitably heated up and the Pope put together an army and made his way down. Roger met him with his own army, made up of the vassals who were loyal to him, his own troops, and mercenaries who he had paid handsomely with all the cash he seemed to be rolling around in all the time. The papal force took up position on the plains of Benevento, and Roger took up position on the surrounding slopes. The troops of the Pope looked upon the superior forces of the Norman leader and waited for them to attack. And waited. And waited. Roger did not move. The heat beat down. The Pope's vassals started to wonder if it was really worth it. I mean, we're talking about Normans here. The more they wondered, the more they grew closer to the conclusion that it wasn't worth it. Roger waited. The hot sun continued to beat down and soon managed to melt away the papal army who headed off home. Pope Honorius was forced to recognize Roger II as Duke of Calabria, Puglia and Sicily. Roger happily paid homage to his overlord, the Pope, knowing full well where true power lay. So much was that power that no duke in Europe could rival Roger of Sicily. Indeed, the boots of a duke felt rather tight for the Norman, very tight indeed. Perhaps it was time for a change of attire, more regal footwear perhaps. Now anyone, even I, could pop up and declare themselves king of something. I am Mike, king of my garden, first of my name. The issue is getting enough people to recognize you as such, to actually make it stick, and to have some kind of official recognition, from a pope perhaps. Now that would not be an easy job, even for a man as powerful as Roger. So, how could he get it done? Could he do it at all? We'll have to see next time. As always, thanks very, very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Ed, Jeff, Joshua and Sean, to the Matilda of Canossa and Mazzini level, Benjamin, Maddie, Roberta, Scott and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Ben, Silane, Chris, Dean, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen, and Vincent, and the top level, Maria Montessori, and Dante Alighieri, Sen, and Paolo. Remember, you can get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com, 
And on the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media. Remember also the trip to Ravenna, 24th of August, 2019. If you're going to be around the area in that period, please do get in touch. Thanks again, and until next time, Arrivederci. My good Lord Prince, how are thee on this fine day? I fare well, my Lord. Good, good. Out to support the Pope, eh? Yes, yes. Don't want those pesky Normans taking over anything now, do we? Normans? Yes, why? Oh, nothing, nothing. <laughs> go, go, Pope, yes. I'm ready. Rather hot, isn't it? Well, yes, it is a bit. Why aren't they attacking? Beats me. I wish to hurry up. It's so hot. I can't take this. The heat. The Normans. I am so bored. I'm uh, I'm quite sure I uh, saw a little tavern in the wood on the way. Let's go. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.